0: and the background to the letter written to the Ephesian church. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you to, you can read from the screen and you can open up to Ephesians chapter 1, but we're going to end up settling back at Acts chapter 19 as we look at the founding and the continual establishment of this church. So our basis as we begin to look at verses 1 and 2 is uh, the Apostle Paul saying here in uh, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the Saints which are in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus grace be to you in peace for God our Father uh, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first two weeks in our lesson we looked at a few things we uh, we looked at uh, primarily uh, we looked at the great evangelistic experience that happened there in Ephesus as we begin to break down Acts 19 you can go ahead and turn there if you would like. And uh, one of the things that we see, especially in those first seven verses, was three doctrinal issues that was faced in those first seven verses, a, a doctrinal dilemma, three divisions, a dialogue with the disciples, and then disciples' deliverance. And uh, we understood those men looked like John, walk like John, act like John, but had never heard of the Holy Ghost, never heard of the Holy Spirit. And there are different avenues and positions on what people have feel about those particular disciples. If they did not receive the Holy Ghost, they were not uh, saved, if you will. They wasn't sealed under the day of redemption. And uh, so I believe they got saved in Acts 19. Uh, I believe in a great way as you begin to see different people, uh, they learned a more better way, if you will. And so as we looked at Acts 19, verses 8 through 12, we saw the meeting in the synagogue, the mentoring uh, at Tyrannus, and the miracle in society, which brings us up to verses 17 through 20 tonight of Acts 19 as we continue to dig through and look at the foundation, the background, if you will, concerning concerning the letter that's written unto uh, the Ephesian church, but really primarily looking at what happened in Ephesus as uh, as Paul relates to that when he does write back to them. So in Acts chapter 19, I ask you to turn there, if you will, uh, if you're not already there, Acts 19. And in verse seventeen we find this, it says, And this was known, and this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before uh, all men, and they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Verse 20 says, So mightily grew uh, the word of God and prevailed. So Paul begins uh, to close uh, a great work, and, and I mean, we're talking about a great work ever since. I mean, he, he finds out that you cannot do right uh, and get away with it, if you will. Uh, a mighty rev- I, We've always said a mighty revival breaks out, but beloved, this is not a revival. Revival is bringing that which was once alive uh, back to life again. It's reviving that spirit. It's taking someone uh, who are, whose heart is a fallow ground. A fallow means land, you know, ground that was once tilled and, and, and flourished and, and grew, and, but it's been laying desolate, if you will. So turning over that fallow ground, get it replanted, get it turned over, get it plowed, get it dug in and get it planted. That's what a revival is. This here is an evangelistic experience. This is an evangelistic outreach. This is souls getting saved and born again. And, beloved, this is what we want to see. I know we pray every Friday morning at half nine. Uh, We come, we meet together, we pray for revival throughout South Wales. And we need to continue to pray for revival. Because I do believe that people will get saved and born again, especially when God's people will get right with him. And I do believe there are people that are saved and born again. They're saved in our midst, and their, their spirit is cold, it's hard, it's darkened. Maybe they're in a church that, that doesn't teach and preach proper Bible doctrine, which are a dime a dozen, guys, a dime a dozen. Are they all out there teaching false doctrines and hokey pokey and happy clappy and all these different things, but not straight Bible doctrine. And so people are just shallow, they're superficial in their Christianity, and there's no true spiritual uh, uprising or fire that is within them. It's just this shallow, superficial, slurpy thing, and it's doing nothing uh, inside the fabric of society. What I want to see or those who do know Christ as their Savior to get on fire with the right doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ so that God will get involved in their life and bless their life. And from that outpouring of a revival, then I would like to see evangelistic experience much like what you find in Ephesus. This city, a local church that was born here, uh, they have the rewards of sending out a multitude of missionaries, preachers, pastors throughout the world, and they planted churches. The work here, which went on in this city, had a worldwide effect, a worldwide effect that even continues to affect us today. The reality of a true revival is that it will change a city. It'll change a town, a community, a village. It'll change a nation, it will. Here we find books were burned, a direct display of no return. They repented of the witchcraft, and by tossing the books in the fire, they said, we will go back no longer. I mean, guys, if, if you're putting away sin in a closet, if you're hiding it up underneath a, uh, in, in a friend's flat, or you're putting it up underneath the door and saying, hey, I may have to come back to that later on, that's not true repentance. You're not turning away from it and forsaking it. You're putting it back in case what you're doing now doesn't work out to your liking, amen. These people didn't do that. This evangelistic experience came at a great cost to those fifty thousand pieces of silver of worth. Of all of these books were destroyed. Now here's the deal: some of us today, and we've seen this in times past, and I've seen this in uh, in well in one of the first the first church that I pastored that uh, that we planted. And uh, you know, you know, people would come to our church, and people that were saved and born again, and they start hearing this preaching and teaching, and and they start learning, and they get convicted. And and uh, I I taught a series on the truth about angels. I taught that here years ago. I taught it way I, the first time I taught the thing. I think it was in two thousand two, and uh, we had a family in the church, and uh, man, they got so convicted on learning the truth about what an angel really is, they went home. Okay. And they took everything down that, that looked like a, you know, what the world think an angel would be, like a, you know, a blonde, blue-haired, uh, you know, woman, and uh, or a little fat baby, you know, like a cherub like you see on Valentine's Day. And they they had these pictures and paintings up on their wall. They took them all down. They took them all down. And they came to me on Sunday and said, hey, preacher, we're having a yard sale. <laughs> and uh, we're taking all those things down, and they're in the yard right now, and a, like a boot sale we have here. And uh, they said, you know, we're, you know, you think we should sell those things, or should we just get rid of them? I said, "Well, tell me why you're getting rid of them because well, they're wrong." I said, "Then why do you want to make money off of it?" You know. I said, "You do what you want to." They, <laughs> I think, uh, I think Brother Pete came home and half the house was out in the out in the garden out there, and he's like, good night, woman. What is going on?" She goes, well, "She she just ripped it all out and got rid of it, man." And uh, and guys, praise God for that. And I know some people look at that and say, "Oh, that's crazy. That's you know, that's fanatical. That's this. no, that's not." You're telling me that what happened in Ephesus here. Um, is fanatical and short-lived, and it wasn't short-lived. Again, I say to you, I mean, there were preachers and pastors and missionaries, church winners that were sent out of this place that planted churches throughout the world. And again, today, guys, today, uh, we're still reaping from those benefits. The loss financially of what these guys endured was temporal, whereas the gains were eternal. And the gospel has always had a disturbing effect on family and people. Everywhere it went. When people got saved, they got stirred, they got separated, and the outreach does not come without a cost. When Paul writes back to the Corinthian church, he says this in uh, chapter 4 in the first letter in verse 11. He says, Even unto the present hour we both hunger and thirst and and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor and working with our own hands, being reviled, we blessed, being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat, uh, we are made as the filth of the world and are the offscurring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. So Paul's writing them. And I want you to remember, Paul writes this letter. He writes 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. He's writing it while this explosion was occurring, if you will. So let's go back to uh, to Acts in chapter 19 and pick up here with me, if you will, <clears throat> verse 21. So we see this explosion happen, this setting on the books of fire saying we will not return. There's the testimony of a young lady who was a, uh, a, a I guess she was a witch and uh, she was a Satan worshiper and she was heavily involved in witchcraft. She's a famous tattoo artist and this and that. And I don't know a lot of details, but I know enough, okay? And uh, I heard a, I read an article about a year and a half ago that this particular woman had uh, forsaken witchcraft and was coming away from it. Then I heard nothing else about it. And it turns out over the last 18 months or so, she's been having her tattoos that were uh, witchcraft-type tattoos covered up just with black ink, okay? And uh, just covering them up, black ink. And I guess eventually she's just going to be like, you know, just all black ink, but she's covering it up, you know what I'm saying? She's not trying to make it look like it's something that it wasn't. She's just covering it up. And apparently she's come out uh, vocally and she has uh, denounced not only witchcraft, but she got saved and born again, baptized in a little bitty Baptist church in the Midwest of America somewhere. And I read her testimony. She said there's sometimes there's 12 people at the church. Sometimes there's not. They packed the church out because she's famous and she's moved to this location. Now, guys, listen. A lot of our people probably would look at her and go, well, man, you know, she needs to get rid of this, she needs to get rid of that, she needs to do this, she needs to do that, and expect her to be what they are in 30 30 years after being saved for 30 days. And guys, that's just wrong. I praise God for that testimony, amen? If you don't think that's hard, this, this, this young lady uh, is, is more than likely a millionaire, and she's risking losing everything that she's made because she's made it all on the backside of, uh, of witchcraft and, and that type of persona and that type of lifestyle, but she has turned her back on that, okay? Guys, this is what you have here this day. This is what you have in Ephesus. You got people who did nothing but worship Diana. You got another group of people who made their millions off of those people buying their arts and their book their witchcraft books and their curious arts and their idols, and they're all taking them in the center of town, lighting a match. Amen. You imagine what's getting ready to happen. Well, look at verse 21, the Bible says, and after these things were were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had. Pass through Macedonia and Achaia uh, to go to Jerusalem, and saying, "After I have been there, I must also see Rome." Verse 22. We see Paul's heart is already uh, looking toward Rome. He doesn't know how he's going to get there. Uh, he never—I don't think—he ever imagined he was going to go there as a prisoner. But he had his heart set: I must also see Rome. And uh, if you want to write a note right there, all roads led to Rome. Paul knew that. And if all roads led to Rome, all roads led from Rome. He knew if he got the gospel to Rome, it would make it throughout the world. Verse twenty-two, And he sent and he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So there are, there are considerations for Paul, uh, Paul's fourth missionary journey, and, and he sends forth two people, his best men, if you will, into these areas to compare and, and, and to look at the way, maybe a survey type of trip. But he himself stayed here in Ephesus. And uh, some people may write and say that he should have left then because of what's getting ready to happen. But he trusted God. He believed God wanted him to stay right here uh, where he was. And then when we get into verse 23, this is when we see the cost that comes with an evangelistic explosion. The cost that comes with this type of experience, we see the riot. This is the riot in Ephesus. This is the background. These are the things that Paul will relate to when he writes this letter back unto them. Notice here in verse 23... And it says, in the same time, or what same time? The same time Paul stayed for a season, the same time Timotheus and Erastus were sent away, and the same time there arose no small stir about that way. Now, beloved, it doesn't take much common sense to understand that this evangelistic experience produced a riot like none other. You had an evangelistic outreach like none other. You had a response like none other. You had 50,000 pieces worth of silver of Curious Arts and all the things that they destroyed. That had never happened before. You had a group of people that had completely turned their back I mean, I would imagine that there was governmental officials who was collecting tax income uh, from those pagan arts being sold. They they started thinking, "Oh my goodness, how are we gonna how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna do that? How are we gonna live our life? How are we gonna you know provide for the roads? How are we gonna? I mean, you know, they're 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 shaking in their boots and their sandals. You got all the pagan uh, uh, artificers over there. They're shaking in their boots because they're seeing everything that they've done go up in smoke, and they're wondering what's going to be in the next day. The reality is, if they had all just gotten saved, God would have blessed that place in in ways that you couldn't imagine, amen. But that's not what happened. You see, the devil only needs one man. He only needs one man. We we, we think in our world today that that the devil needs uh, groups and masses. Our, Our mindset is the masses. Some of us in our world today... We're, we think that success is driven by numbers, that a church is only successful if it's filled. If you seat 1,000, you ought to have 900 there. If you seat 100, you ought to have 90. And, and we, we, our world is driven like that. And I think, I think one of the worst questions, when you meet another minister, another preacher, another pastor, and I know people will be listening to this online, and they need to hear this. You can mark men who are secular and carnal minded. When I mean, one, one of the first questions, now when it comes up in the conversation later on, it's a different thing. But when one of the questions are, how many are you running? How many people you got? When you mark them down, when, you, when somebody asks about your church, how many members do you guys have? How many people are there on Sunday? They are carnal, shallow, and selfish, superficial Christians, even if they are. All right. Better yet, the question ought to be is, and one of the things that I try to ask, uh, we had lunch, matter of fact, yesterday with, uh, with, with two minister friends of ours and uh, their families over in Taunton. We had a luncheon meeting, and it was a wonderful time of fellowship, good time together. And uh, I never once asked, how many you're running? Um, I asked, how are your people doing? How's church doing? How's family doing? How's the ministry real working? Those are the questions that you ask when you really care how someone's doing. But when you want to compare, well, how many of you got? That's all that is. You see, in Ephesus, guys, just like in our world today, the devil only needs one man. He doesn't need the masses. He doesn't need uh, 40 people. He needs one man to cause a great stir. In this particular situation, it was a man by the name of Demetrius. You, You think about this, guys. Hitler was one man, wasn't he? And 12 million people were, were murdered by Hitler. Six million of those are Jews. 1.5 million of those Jews were children. Innocent, little children. Who are the other six million? His own people. Elderly. Handicapped. Disabled. People that he considered to be flaws in society. Saddam Hussein was one man. We had this conversation. I think we had this uh, conversation the other day. So now he, he, in one fell swoop, Saddam Hussein killed 180,000 Kurds with poisonous gas. Somebody asked me, do you think uh, um, Saddam Hussein needed to die? Did the war need to happen? I, I can't answer you as to whether or not the war needed to happen, but that man needed to die. That's exactly what needed to happen. Stalin was one man. And he killed 20 million people. His own people. 20 million. You study your history out in the First World War and you find out what happened when some of those POWs went home. It's sad. Just one man. Good night, Jim Jones is one man. You guys remember the story of Jim Jones? One man, 913 people drank the kool-aid that jim jung was selling they all died in guyana south america one man the devil doesn't need 40. the devil doesn't need 15. he only needs one to stir up the people nevertheless paul sending missionaries out despite what's getting ready to happen paul sending preacher boys out to prepare fields in other location despite what is going on and guys he sent them out throughout the world so churches could be planted amen Churches need to be planted today, not pulpits being swapped out by the next person or the, the next American to come fill the slot. Amen? We need men to stand up, and we need people to stand in the gap. Look in verses uh, 26 here. And yeah, verse 26, and we may or may not read all the way down to verse 41. But uh, when we look at Acts 19, verse 26, uh, uh, the Bible says here, Moreover, ye see and hear, now this is this one guy, if we uh, back up, if you will, sorry, to verse 24. Uh, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which was, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsman, whom he called together with the workmen uh, of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not only, not alone uh, at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that there be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana uh, should um, should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and a men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. When Paul would have entered into unto them, the disciples suffered him not. And a certain of the chief of Asia, uh, which were his friends, sent unto unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore, look at verse thirty-two. Some therefore cried out one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Of course, you know the story of Alexander they drew and the multitude and the Jews putting him forward. All this that happened, we'll stop there just for the time being. You know, Paul himself writes in his letters about what is going on. Again, he writes the second letter to the Corinthian church saying in, verse, in chapter 1 and in verse 8, uh, saying, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even life. I mean, there was problems, there was trouble. Paul looks back at this riot in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4 uh, and in verse 11. This is what Paul uh, says. He makes this comment. He says, Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst, and, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless; being persecuted, we suffer, being defamed, we entreat, but we are made as the filth of the world and the offscoring of all things unto this day. And I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you, he says. We read that earlier. Is describing the closing out of the three years of his labor in Ephesus. This church. 18 months later, uh, from Corinth, uh, he'll write uh, he'll write the book of Rome, uh, uh, The sorry, the letter unto the Roman church, the Roman Christians, and he'll say this in Romans chapter eight and in verse 35. He'll tell them there. Uh, he'll say, "Who shall separate us?" Uh, who shall separate us from uh, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall tr- uh, distress, shall persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And you know the rest of that verse. He says, Yea, nothing's going to separate us from it. He said, We're more than conquerors in verse 37 of that same chapter. After three years in Ephesus, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, For we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants uh, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of uh, may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing in the body, always bearing in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death working in us, but life in you. Paul's going through all of this, he's suffering, he's struggling. One of the things that I want to bring to your attention uh, that you see there in 2 Corinthians is that he says they're troubled, he says they're not distressed. He says we're perplexed, but not in despair. In other words, we're perplexed, we're confused, but we ain't without hope. We come back to Acts in chapter 19. And we look down in that final verse that we read, verse 32. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and the most part knew not wherefore uh, they were come together. The majority of the people that was in the midst of this riot dragged into the theater against this Paul, okay, and that way, all right, they didn't even have the first idea of why they were there. They were hooping and hollering and squalling about something else. Everybody was, it was just nothing but... Mass confusion. The Bible tells me what God is not the author of confusion, is he? Paul says we're perplexed. We don't fully understand what's going on, but we're not without hope. He says we're not in despair. These people here, Demetrius, this one man that stirred up this riot, that brought to an end this three-year work that Paul had, had done in here by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, This one guy stirred up those silversmiths and he says, man, our life is over with. Our livelihood is done. We are completely finished. He is saying himself, man, we're without hope. Paul never says that. Yeah, he may have been perplexed about what was going on, not knowing the outcome of what's going to happen, but he wasn't without hope. So one of the few things that we'll draw your attention to will be done here this evening is I want you to see as we go back to those verses there in verse 23, in the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. Beloved, that way is the Christian way. Your Christianity, if you are stood upon the foundation of truth, the Word of God, something that is inherently different than everything in the world. One of the conversations Denise and I were having is on the backside of mine and Kelton's text just before we, um, I think either as we was leaving today, about the playoffs right now with the NFL, you know, with National Football League. You know, you got a, we got one quarterback, uh, Brock Purdy, with the 49ers. Uh, who proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ. He is widely outspoken about it. He gives glory and, and credit to Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Every interview he has, he's lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. You have the Texans quarterback, who is C.J. Stroud, and doing the very same thing. As a matter of fact, NBC edited his, uh, his uh, post-game uh, comments because he lifted up the Lord Jesus Christ, but he does it every single time, that he first and foremost wants to give credit to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then on the Ravens, their coach, uh, their coach, uh, in his interviews, he is widely, he has greatly lifted up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess Lamar Alexander, I mean, I guess he's doing a, Lamar Jackson, not Lamar Alexander, Lamar uh, Jackson, is, he's been mentioned about Jesus Christ. And I don't know about the Lions. I don't know if they have somebody that's spoken on there. They may or they may not have. I may have missed it. But I'm saying it, and I made the comment to uh, to, to Kelton, I said, man, it's, it's good times to be able to see people taking that stage in the forefront and, and lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, and so Denise and I were talking about that, using their platform to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, you see. When you do that, you are going to be marked. There's something about you that is different than those that are in the world today. We don't see it around here in our society anymore. You want, There was a time when you did. There was a time in our society right here where the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up, where people wouldn't be found dead on a rugby pitch or a soccer field or somewhere else on a Sunday. They would be in church. But somewhere along the line, that way offended and affected the business owners... And they turned their back on it somewhere along the line that way got forsaken that way what way the way that makes a difference in people's eternity and it may cost Satan uh, some souls and it may cost the devil some lives and it may cost you some money and it may cost business some funds and all this and that because they want to play by the world's rules and God wants you to play by the Bible rules and when you play by, by, by the Bible rules people are gonna get saved your life is gonna be blessed but you're gonna have problems with those in the world because they're going to mark you and say, he's one of them. He's one of those. She's one of that way. You understand what I'm saying? That way. And then you look down just a little bit in verse 26, as Demetrius is doing the devil's work. Moreover, you see and hear that not not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, watch this, this Paul, have persuaded and turned away much people, saying there would be no gods which are made with hands. This Paul. Let me ask you a question here. Do you ever think at any given time when some of these pagan artificers or blacksmiths or silversmiths would come together and the name of Paul was mentioned, do you think they had to say, you know Paul of Tarsus? No, they knew who he was talking about. This Paul. They knew exactly. The one that has caused the uproar. The ones when they said, when he came to a city one time, they said, uh, Paul and his company. The ones they said that those that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. Beloved, I'm saying all that to give you the foundation and background to the letter that we're getting ready to break up into verses by verse throughout this quarter. Wanting you to understand what I desire for you to learn from it. I want to turn our village upside down. I want to turn our county upside down. I want to turn our nation upside down. I want to turn all of Cardiff upside down. You say, preacher, do you want to see the fabric of our society change? You better believe I do. Do I want big things? I want big things. Am I looking for this? Am I looking for the ma- Am I trying to build something for myself? No. What I'm trying to do is establish that way in a society that has turned their back on God almost exclusively. God is not, and this word of God is not in the center line of our governmental decisions any longer. It's who we can't offend. We can't offend the .03% of the world society by mentioning the Lord Jesus Christ anymore or holding standards for the home. I want to change the fabric of our school system, which is teaching pure perversion to three and four and five years old, led and orchestrated by the devil's pedophiles. I'll say it clearly, say it publicly. That's all they are. You, my friend, are a flat-out pedophile. If you teach children that perversion, something's utterly wrong with you, Do you understand. Amen. Do I want to see the society change? Yeah. But society is not going to change until souls change. And souls aren't going to change until God's people get it in their heart and get it in their mind. That missions, okay, is in the heart of God, but it's in our hands. It is our duty. Jesus Christ didn't show up at your doorstep and knock your door. He didn't drop down a neon sign your, your your life and say, you need to be saved and born again. He sent somebody who surrendered their heart and their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and somehow along the way, they gave you a gospel tract, they witnessed the gospel to you, your mom and daddy did, whatever it was, that's how you got saved. And beloved, that's how people of this world are going to get saved. And if we're going to see foundations change, if we're going to see the fabric of society be altered, if we're going to see an uproar and a riot as a result of 50,000 pieces of silver worth of curious art be burned in the streets of Abraham, let it be done, amen? But it's going to be done when that way is spoken by this people, amen? That's when a difference is going to be made. And that's what I'm challenging you with tonight, to be those that are different. Be the one that stands out in the crowd, Be the one that sets yourself apart. You heard Sunday about the abstinence, about abstaining from all appearance of evil. Don't give the devil fuel and fire to destroy who and what you are. Take a stand today on the living word of God. It saved your soul for eternity, guys. You can at least live for it in the midst of the days we have on this earth. Will you bow your heads? Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and time to be here tonight. Thank you for all that you've done. Lord, I just thank you for the the precious Word of God. I simply ask you this evening that if you will, that you make a difference in our life, that you would continue to grow and develop our hearts, minds, souls, our our mindset, Father. But I pray as we continue to break down this this book here, we're finally going to get into Ephesians next week. I pray as we do so, Lord, that you would speak to our heart and that we would never forget what happened in Ephesians. Ephesus to, to give birth to the letter that Paul writes back into the church. That they, These people turned and, gro- and drove away from paganism, away from their old life. They turned away from their own ideologies, their own mindset, their own, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay, and they turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they did it with a public profession, and they said, I'll go back no more. So Lord, I pray that we can duplicate that here. And Lord, if the riot happened, let it be done. But I lift up in prayer today that millions, of souls come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ according to that way that we read about here in the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope the teaching and preaching of the Word of God uh, will be a blessing to your heart. a blessing to your heart tonight.